Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. This is where top performers share their secrets to help you achieve your personal and your professional goals. I am your host, Denise Griffiths, and together with my truly amazing guests, we will bring you inspiring and actionable insights to help you take your life and your business to the next level. And ranked in the top 2% globally, this podcast really is a must listen. So let's dive in, sit back, relax, and prepare to explore the answers to all of the questions that I ask my guests, and I do ask a lot of them. So today we're talking about leadership. And in the world of leadership, choosing a learn-it-all mindset, write that down, learn-it-all mindset instead of a know-it-all attitude, write that down as well, can really make a difference. And today we're exploring key points that underscore why this approach is so important. Joining me is Damon Limby. He is the author of The Learn-It-All Leader, Mindset, Traits, and Tools. And in the realm of navigating the dynamic landscape of learning and development for nearly three decades, Learn It has been led by Damon, a leader with a keen eye for what truly works, an understanding of how exceptional leaders approach learning, and a belief in the competitive edge of companies that wholeheartedly embrace a learned. So a bit about Damon, transitioning from a successful career in baseball, he infuses a distinctive viewpoint, a seasoned athlete's perspective on leadership and training, and he infuses that into the realm of business. His informal mentorship of executives has allowed him to distill valuable insights from the field, shaping the narrative of his book. And today he joins us to share those experiences and insights. Good morning, Damon. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. And thank you for sending your book to me. It is in front of me as we speak. Denise, good morning. And thank you for having me today. I'm excited to be here. I am as well. I mean, when the book, well, I've had the book here for a while. You you sent it to me in August. That's how long you've been waiting to get on this show. And I read it when it landed on my doorstep. Listen, I have what I call an entrepreneurial library in my office, and I'm looking around, and I have hundreds, hundreds of books in here. Every single book, without exception, was gifted by my podcast guests, and I read them. You know, I devour them. They really do become part of my my mentoring mindset. If I have a thought, I'm like, mm, where did I hear that? I head to the bookcase. But to say that I read it once is not exactly true because I read it again this weekend, knowing that I was going to have you on the show today. It's a terrific book. It really is. I mean, I don't know a whole lot about sports, but I certainly understand where you're coming from with the sports mindset. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for taking the time to read it. And I'm, uh, I appreciate you doing that. And I'm glad that you got value out of it. Well, I did. And the thing is, I mean, if you're going to take the time to send me your book, I'm going to read it. You know, that's just all there is to it. And some of them, I actually, you're going to laugh at me. I actually have certain shelves that house the books that I know I'm going to go back to over and over again. Well, I hope my book made that shelf. Well, it will as soon as it comes off my desk. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. I I was listening to one of your other episodes and you talked about how you had your multicolored cards that you would take your notes on too. I think that's pretty interesting. I do. I use colored index cards. Index cards, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I use stickies, but the cards, excuse me, I'm losing my voice a little bit today. The cards, I can, you know, grab it and go, oh, I remember this because I'm taking notes. And it's kind of like, you know, I don't know if you use a Dayminder. I have always used one as long as, you know, as as well as my Google Calendar. But I like a Dayminder because I can jot something down on that date look at it 10 years later and be right back where I was. I remember it. That's that's, uh, that's interesting. That's cool. 
Yeah, the cards kind of work the same way. I can open up the card. And if it's a pink one, that means pay attention. Okay. And the green ones are, oh, this is a money. You know, this one's about money. This is good advice. And you know, I've got different colors. But if I'm grabbing them and I can look at my notes and go, oh, yay, and then jot down more notes, it just helps me keep track of where I am or what's important to me in that book. And then you told me when you're, well, you didn't tell me, but I heard that when you're done with them, you, you put them through the shredder. I do. Well, those are my white cards. Those, those are, are white cards. Okay. Yeah. Those are the ones that are on my desk. They're not in the books, but they're in the books rather. But those are my, I give myself three big tasks a day, three. And only one, you know, one on each card, one on each card, one on the, on the third card. And there may be a couple subcategories on that. But when I'm done with that card, it's kind of a rite of passage. I run it through the shredder. It's very cathartic. Yeah, that's great. I do something similar not on cards, but I have my big three for the month, for the week, and for the day. And mm -hmm. I try to start off uh, the day accomplishing those, you know, getting the big things out of the way instead of just <clears throat> And just being busy the whole time. But yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you. I, I do things by threes as well. It's triune. I don't know what it is, but three is the magic, magic number for me. Great. Okay. So let's talk about you. I, you know, I mentioned that you transitioned from a su successful career in baseball. Let's talk about that a little bit. Where were you? So growing up, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area. I was fortunate that back in, in those days, all my friends were, I had a great little group of friends who I'm still friends with today, 40 plus years later. And we played whatever sport it was during that season, whether it was football, basketball, baseball, soccer. And I enjoyed all of them. But sometime around my sophomore year in high school, I realized that if I was going to continue on and play in college, baseball was really my best bet. And so at the end of my senior year, I uh, I was lucky enough, I got drafted by the Atlanta Braves in the 13th round quite a while ago. And I had my first big decision to make, and that was, do I go the minor league route or do I go to college? And so I decided, my parents were great. They gave me the opportunity. They said, hey, you know, this is your choice. It's your life. We'll support you in whatever direction you want to go. And I chose, as a 17-year-old, I chose to go to college. I, I was kind of I didn't know if I was ready for the minor league life yet. And so I went to Pepperdine um, on a full scholarship and I uh, I got hurt. And, you know, fast forward, I jumped from Pepperdine to a junior college, College of San Mateo. And then I ended up playing at Arizona State in the uh, College World Series, which was really exciting. And I was ready to continue these uh, my baseball career, get drafted and, and continue on. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, it just happens, I wasn't drafted. And here I was around 21 or 22 years old. And, you know, my identity was really a baseball player. And that's what I was all committed and, and wanted to be. That dream was kind of over. And so now I had to decide, you know, what was the next step, uh, next phase of my career. Yeah, it was a little disappointing and I was depressed a little bit. And I wasn't sure my skills were transferable, but I was lucky to come from a family that had multiple businesses. We were a large real estate company in San Francisco. And at the time, my dad was starting a computer training company called Learn It. And I was a little intimidated to go into the real estate business. So I took a job at the computer training company, Learn It, as a receptionist. And I worked my way up uh, over about seven years of teaching classes, doing sales, answering phone calls. And fast forward, you know, 26 plus years later, I've been the CEO for over 24 years and we've upskilled close to 2 million people. And here we are. I have to say, Damon, that I'm listening to you, you know, kind of recount your very early year, 17. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing to me that you had that focus and that wisdom at 17 years old most 17 years old kids don't know their butt from a hot rock <laughs> I didn't yeah I, I you know I don't know I don't know if it was wisdom trust me I've made plenty of mistakes but I, I just knew that I wasn't ready yet at that point and I was you know really grateful that my parents gave me the opportunity and we we, we weighed the decision and that was the decision I made and and I'm you know I don't regret any of the uh, decisions back then. And it doesn't sound like you do. So what did you distill from being, you know, in baseball and being a sports 
I'm, I don't even know what to call you, a sports enthusiast. <laughs> well, um, you tell me what you would call you. Well, you know, it, it's funny. I, I'm not even that into sports anymore. I mean, I, I mean, I still watch sports, but now as a parent of a six-year-old and a two-year-old, I, I know more about Paw Patrol or uh, Frozen than, than I do about uh, who's the starting lineup for the San Francisco Giants. But I would say, and I talk a lot about this in my book, as I'm, I'm sure you saw, I was really fortunate that I, I played for three Hall of Fame baseball coaches, which a lot of people, you know, most don't get an opportunity to. Andy Lopez at Pepperdine, John Nochi, who's a legend at um, College of San Mateo, and Jim Brock. And what I learned from those coaches is what helped me shape and model my leadership skills um, for where I am today. So it's been a tremendous experience. And I'm willing to bet that you didn't even know that at the time. You were just absorbing it and, you know, holding it to your chest when you needed it. That's a great point, Denise. I had no idea that I would be using what I learned and leveraging that um, in, in my later on in my life. But isn't that what great coaches do? They teach you, they inspire you. You may ignore them. You may want to smack them around a little bit when they start getting, you know, pushy with you. But down the road, you're like, oh, there it is. Okay, I got it. I, I will tell you, there were several instances where I didn't enjoy or like or even want to be around those coaches. And, and imagine. Right. And I guess it's kind of like parents too, right? Where the parents kind of lay down the law or, you know, they, they hold you accountable and don't realize it at the time. I mean, for example, Andy Lopez, you know, I only was there for one year at Pepperdine, got hurt and left. And we didn't speak for 30 years. But when I uh, decided to write my book and I kind of put together all my thoughts and, and, and my approach to uh, leadership and, you know, the successes and failures I had, I had a lot to um, to thank him for, from what I learned, which I maybe didn't even, maybe it was even subconscious that I learned all that from him. And when my book first came out, I actually made a special trip to Tucson where he lives and we reconnected over it. And I shared with him how grateful I was for the learning lessons that he taught me um, at uh, Pepperdine back in those days. I love that story because so often it's, and it's not that we're ignoring the lessons that we learned or the coaches who taught us willingly or unwillingly or knowing or unknowingly, but you had the opportunity to connect with him again. And I'm so glad you did. Yeah. So am I. It was great. So let's talk about, let's go back to your company. Why are great leaders learn it alls? versus know-it-alls. Let's let's talk about those because I mentioned at the top, write this down, learn it all, know it all. Let's let's make the uh, the case there. Okay. So let's start with know-it-alls. And it's pretty, we pretty much know what that is. So a know-it-all is somebody who comes into a situation feeling like they have all the answers, that, that their way is the right way. They have it all figured out. They're not open to uh, listening to what other people have to say. And on the opposite side of that is a learn-it-all. A learn-it-all is somebody who comes in with a beginner's mind. They're open to ideas. And sometimes they even really challenge that what they're doing is the right way about going about something. And so that they're open to feedback. They're open to trying something new. So that's really, and, and they're also, and I think that this is important, Denise, they're also not afraid to admit, you know, to be vulnerable and admit that maybe they don't have all the answers and to ask for help. Those are the two, those are the main differences between a learn it all and know it all. What I've learned really, you know, since I've, uh, since I wrote this book and, and, and speaking with people is a lot of us, me included, you know, we're know-it-alls in some domains and learn it alls in other, you know, so we got to always be mindful and learn to be open and listen get curious, which is really important, and uh, go from there. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how you did this, but I am actually looking at page 53, and there's a, a little area that says, be curious, and you're talking about your father's curiosity. But right beneath that is possibility spotting. Curiosity allows you to view obstacles as interesting puzzles to solve rather than setbacks to passively endure. This one has a pink card in it, by the way. 
I like that. I like that. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> but let's talk about be curious because that is something that I think is so important. Curiosity is my mother used to say it was my besetting sin. It's not. I have others, <laughs> but you know, it's just you have to be curious and you have to ask questions and you have to delve. And if you're not, I'm not sure what you're doing here. You, you got to be curious. You got to ask questions and you also have to listen. You yes. know, it's, not, it's not enough to just ask questions and then in your mind be formulating an answer before the, the person you ask the question to. No, absolutely. I, I think curiosity is it's kind of a theme uh, uh, throughout my book. And whether you're in sales and a discovery call with a customer or you're a, a manager or leader and listening to your employees or you're looking at your product and talking to your customers and you want to get curious and ask questions, I think it's all about asking questions and you know asking second and third layer questions to really, like you said, delve into uh, whatever you're talking about. And then if I go to, to page 62, interested is interesting. And it says, extend your curiosity to people as well. Take an active interest, interest in your team members and learn about their hobbies, their families, and interests outside of work. Not only will this create a strong professional bond, it will also help you better understand the needs and motivations of the people you need to motivate. Can't argue with that. You know, uh, this is something that uh, I heard somebody say the other day, and I love it. It's better, and this goes back to being a learn-it-all versus a know-it-all. It's better to be interested than interesting. I think that's a, a clever phase or, or phrase to, to hear people say. You, know, you want to be interested in what people have to say. Right. And a, a good friend of mine, in fact, he's my my Wednesday co-host, Ben Gay Third. Um, he's known as the sales legend, living sales legend. He was the last mentee of Dr. Napoleon Hill, and he has fascinating stories to share. But he always said that, who was it? Nelson Mandela, Nelson Mandela, and I'm going to botch this up. I know I am. But Nelson Mandela was always known as an incredible speaker. But what he really was, was an incredible listener. Yeah, I believe that because a lot of times, you know, when you're having a conversation with somebody and they walk away from that conversation all excited and they think that, oh, you know, I had a great conversation with Damon, blah, 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 this and that. A lot of times it's because, like you just said, it's not so much of what you had to say, but it's how you listened and the questions you asked to the individual you're speaking with. And that's exactly right. And if you are to stand in a group and watch people and you'll be watching the person that everybody else is watching or paying attention to he or she is not saying a whole heck of a lot but they have everybody's attention and they're listening and they're asking questions and they're making good eye contact and the empathy and the compassion is kind of pouring out of them you know there's and this was said a lot uh several times i've heard about bill clinton that when you were when you were having a conversation with him, you know, he made you feel like the most important person in the world. And he had laser focus and attention on uh, you and just made people feel really heard, which I think is important, especially uh, for a leader, both with your customers, but especially with your, your team members. As I discussed earlier, and like you mentioned in the book about getting to know your team members. Exactly. So, Let's talk about hiring because you say that you hire or should hire for potential over experience. And I agree with you, but share it with our audience why you say that and why it's so important. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of hiring for potential over experience. Now, obviously, you can't do that in all all roles. You know, it doesn't work in all situations, but in a lot of situations, it does. And one of the things, well, the thing I'm most proud about at Learn it is the team and the talent I've been able to assemble over the past 28 years. And Denise, the vast majority of the employees that we've had, the team members we've had, we've got them early on in their career. And it's because we went out and we looked for specific traits in individuals. You know, for Learn it all, I mean, the traits that I really think are important are humility, 
curiosity, like we just mentioned, having integrity is a, a must, of course, and then having courage. And so a lot of times I'm looking for that and the competitive drive than somebody who has, you know, five or 10 years experience in a particular field. And if you give people an opportunity who may not get opportunity elsewhere, but you see that they have that ability and then you coach them up into it, you know, you're going to get great, loyal, hardworking and motivated team members. Now, in order to do that, you have to be willing to give them the space they need to try things and make mistakes and, and have failure and not get frustrated with them and help really coach and help them learn and progress throughout their uh, tenure at your organization or even, even past. And so that's really why I prefer uh, potential over experience. I remember you know, we when I had an office in Arizona uh, in early 2000, I think five, and we were doing a, uh, a sales coaching uh, for our team, and 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 some woman we hired from a competitor with about 15 years of experience. Uh, I didn't hear her say it, but she turned to somebody and said, "What is this guy going to teach me?" You know, I, I've been selling since before he was even born, and it got back to me. And it, that, to me, that's just a, a closed mind, right? You know, it's closed thinking you have all the answers, like we talked about. So I prefer to have somebody who's eager and open. What happened with her? Did she stay or did she go? She lasted about another two weeks. I would think. <laughs> I would. I probably would have let her go at my earliest opportunity i did hey denise are you familiar with the uh herb keller story from uh, southwest no so there's a great I, I talked a little bit about it in my book but it's one of my favorite stories that i've said hundreds of times throughout my career and that story was when southwest first started and they were on the brink of bankruptcy Herb came in and said, the only, you know, he came in and he said, the only way we're going to be able to survive is if we reduce our prices, slash our prices. But in order to do so, we have to do more flights. And that means the turnaround time needs to go down to about 12 minutes from whatever it was, like, let's say 18. And so he took that to his executive team and to his board. And they looked at him like he was crazy. They're like, there's no way you can do it. You know, the, the the quickest we could probably get down to is 16. And if you're even going to try, you need to hire the best people from American Airlines, from Continental, from every of these different competitors uh, who have all this experience. And Herb said, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to hire bright individuals with no experience. I'm going to train them up and I'm going to tell them we have to get it to 12 minutes. You know, and they don't know any better. And you know what they did? Uh -huh. They got it down to 10 minutes. The 10, they, and they call it the 10 minute turn story, which is a, which is a classic. So it can be done. And it's amazing people who have, you know, irrational thoughts or goals sometimes, you know, what you can really accomplish by setting your mind to it. And they didn't know what they didn't know. So they, they didn't know what they didn't know. Right. They went all in. I remember, look, I've been reading since I was three years old. This is one of my favorite stories, but it's important to me. I've been reading since I was three. Don't ask me how or why I just started reading when I was three. Not well, obviously, but I was doing it when I got to kindergarten. I remember my very large, at least in my five-year-old eyes, woman teacher she was of germanic descent she had a very strong accent she was lovely but she was big and scary and my mom was five foot nothing much and a half but she could jump like a flea so we knew not to really get in her way and i remember my mom coming into the the school one day for some reason and the teacher kind of grabbed her you know collared her and said denise is lying to us she says she can read and boy my mom i could see her getting taller and my mom looked up at this woman. She said, why are you calling my daughter a liar? She says, well, she said she can read. My mom said she can. And the teacher said, well, how come she can read? And my mom said, because we didn't tell her she couldn't. I and love that. I love it. Has stuck I love that story. Life. Me too. I mean, yeah. it's, I don't have very many, you know, early memories, but that one will always be with me. But you don't know what you don't know. 
And if somebody says, oh, well, you know, you're too, too young to read. Oh, geez. I hate it when people do that. Well, I just, you know, I mean, I'm, I think that I'm going to probably use that story a couple of times. The fact that, what, what did your mom say? She said, you know, it's because we never told her she couldn't, you know, mm-hmm. she you came in with a open mind, growth mindset, uh, learn it all attitude, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, she didn't set the boundaries and saying, this is something you can't do. She let you explore for yourself. Exactly. And, you know, I'm always safest and happiest with a stack of books. That's where, you know, my heart is. I love to read. Now, you give me a movie, I'm probably going to fall asleep and drool. I don't really enjoy them. But books, that's where I live. But I wanted, and since we're talking about your employees, I know we're skipping around a bit, but you consider your employees a team instead of a family. And I think that's an important distinction. So let's talk about that. Yes. So obviously, you know, I've spent a lot of time with my employees outside of work and, you know, I've gotten to know their family members and everything, but I look at it, I do consider my, my um, employees to be a team instead of a family. And that's because, so first of all, you take your family, you have uncle Bob, you know, uncle Bob, you know, he's always going to be your uncle and there's no way you're not going to be able to invite him to your Thanksgiving dinner. He's always going to be able to come. But when it comes to your team, I think your responsibility as a CEO or as a team lead or whatever is to assemble the best team possible for your organization at that time. And that time may change that that situation may change over time as your company evolves. And it's important to realize that for employees, look, you want to set them up for success and you want them to be loyal and you be loyal to them, but it doesn't mean that they have to stay there their whole career. You know, they might hit, I've had, if you remember the story about the instructor who came to me after 15 years, who was just stale and wasn't into the job anymore. um, And he was just on, you know, record or whatever you'd say and he it was time for him to get uncomfortable and have the courage and move on right and it was something that was a tough move for him to do but he did and now he's super successful and you know I think it's it's important to be a team assemble the best team possible and there are times like I mentioned you know for a company that's at let's say five million dollars we talk about this with our clients you know maybe your COO at five million dollars who got you there isn't going to be the right person to get you to a hundred million dollars. And so, um, yeah, that's why I consider it most important to be a team over a family. Oh, I agree with you. You know, I'm in the deep South and if we call you uncle Bob, it's kind of like, bless your heart. It's not yeah. nice. <laughs> if you don't want to be called uncle Bob ever. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you to listen, we all, suffer from imposter syndrome all of us i do i try to get over it and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but you have a three-step approach to overcoming imposter syndrome right and i'm 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 right there with you i think we all uh, struggle with imposter syndrome at some point in our lives and a lot of times throughout our whole lives and any individual who tries to tell you otherwise you know i think that they're maybe not, you know, being forthcoming, you know, I think they're, they're probably not telling the truth and people can see through that by the way. So, and I really learned this going back to what you talked about, like, what did I learn from my sports career that maybe I didn't even realize Denise, I was learning, but it was how to deal with imposter syndrome that I've used throughout my entire career. And that is when I first got to Arizona state you know, a lot of people said, well, don't go there. There's going to be, there's going to be 20 people trying out for your position. You know, uh, you you may not make the team. And in, I, I kind of felt like, well, maybe I don't even belong, but I'm going to give it my best shot. So my three-step approach to overcoming imposter syndrome, number one, step one is work hard. I'm not saying, you know, work 10 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week. What I'm saying is putting in hard focus, consecutive uh, you know, consistent work. That's step number one. Number two is really focus. Be deliberate on what you're trying to accomplish and put in deliberate work. You know, it's really easy 
to procrastinate when something's hard and, and, you know, get off track, but focus in on what you're doing. And then step number three is once you've worked hard and you've really focused and it's game time, whether it's having to make a uh, presentation or a keynote or whatever it is that's causing you um, anxiety, it's kind of let go and learn. Look, you've put in the work, you've prepared, you know you've prepared, and now just have fun with it. And if things go well, fantastic. If, if things don't go well, well, you know what? It's okay. Don't be too hard on yourself. Learn from that situation and move on. And also realize that in most cases, you know, you're always worried, oh, am I going to embarrass myself? I'm going to let other people down. Well, if that happens, keep in mind that most people, the vast majority, they have their own lives to think about. They're not going to spend too much time thinking about or, or laughing at what you did. So work hard, focus, and then when it's game time, for whatever that kind of game is, you know, let go, learn, and even celebrate or pat yourself on the back for the effort you put in being prepared for the situation. You know, Damon, while you were explaining all this, I wrote down the word vision, and then I flipped to the book to page 122, and you've got a quote in there, business like sports is competitive, great leaders play to win, and winning starts with vision. I can't do anything unless I have a vision for it. Yeah, I think so too. And I think as a leader and uh, I want to take a step back and, you know, for your listeners who may be out there saying, well, you know, I don't, you know, I don't lead a team. So, you know, maybe I'm not considered a leader in the situation. Denise, in my, in my opinion, my definition of a leader, you don't have to manage a team of 10 or of 10,000 everybody can be a leader everybody and that and i mean that by whether you have to lead yourself who's leading you you have to lead yourself you know and 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 that and you have to be accountable and and you can lead by example as a parent as an individual contributor you know in as a student as part of a, a, a group as a student so that's what my definition of being a leader is and like you said it needs to start with leading yourself it really does. And I think so many people will say, and I've heard him, I've heard him say it. Oh, I'm not a leader. You know, I'm just a housewife or I'm just, a... first of all, don't ever use the word just when you're talking yeah. about yourself and don't use the word can't. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things I won't do. Mm-hmm. Swimming is one of them, mostly because I don't swim. <laughs> but I never say I can't. Right. You know, and yeah, I shouldn't just say the word just, you know, Take my my mother, for example, who uh, raised four kids. She, I can tell you what, she wasn't just a housewife. She was a leader. You know, she led us and taught us and led by example and was a great role model for us. So in any walk of life, you, you can absolutely um, be a leader if you choose to be. Oh, exactly. So that leads me to my next question. What are some of the core values or principles that guide you? in your work, in your life? I think the core value and the principles that guide me in my work in life is, it's kind of like going back to the, the traits I was talking about. I mean, you have to have integrity, you know, and, and, and it's important to do the right thing and uh, lead by example. I would also say another big one, and this is one I really learned from my, uh, my father, was to be inclusive, you know, um, it didn't matter if you were the senior executive for a fortune 100 company or a parking lot attendant, like that story I talked about in my book, my dad treated everybody the same, you know, he, he showed respect and treated everybody the same. And that's really one of the core values that I like to live by is, you know, everybody has something to share. You can learn something from everybody and treat people with respect. Tell our audience about the the parking lot attendant. So this is another story that I've used uh, throughout my life. And even though it was, you know, I lost my father to cancer in 2010, but it's a story that I remember like it was yesterday. 
So our office in San Francisco was on Montgomery Street in the financial district. And every Monday night, we would meet up, my dad and I, uh, at Bob's Steakhouse. But before that, he would go to the title company and do his work. And um, and then we'd get together and we'd go meet up at Bob's. And so one night he said, hey, can you, um, I have to go back to the title company. Can you do me a favor and go pick up my car from the, the parking garage? And so I said, sure, no problem. And so, you know, my dad always had a, you know, he had like a Bentley or whatever. <laughs> and he, uh, so I go in there and the, his car was always parked in the front. And there's an assortment of parking lot attendants of all different, you know, races and age. And they'd always be like, learn it, learn it. You know, how you doing, Mr. Damon? How you doing? And so this one gentleman, African-American gentleman came up to me and said, hey, do you want, do you know why your father's car is always parked in the front, always in the front. And I know I said, you know, I don't, I don't know. And he said, because your father, we're in the central part of the financial district and, and everybody who parks here, it's very expensive and they're really busy executives and they don't have time for us. And quite frankly, they're not very friendly to us, but your father is the exact opposite. He always calls us by our first name. He asks us how our children are doing. And, you know, he treats us as humans and we, we just really appreciate it. So we take it, we take care of him. He's also a pretty good tipper, but, you know, he's given us learned classes and, and he's just a really nice guy. And uh, it really goes a long way uh, with all of us. And that's something that I'm grateful for. And it's something that's always stuck with me. And I love that story. And it's people... I don't know if it's just me or if I'm finding the wrong kind of stuff on social media, but it seems like people are getting angrier and meaner, or maybe that's just what's being served up. And I'll be honest with you, I don't watch legacy media. I think it's a big load of propaganda, but that's neither here nor there. But I do see things that just make me go, oh my God, where are we going with all of this? What is happening it's awful. I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's what's being served up and what's happening, but we gotta, you gotta kind of work through that. I, uh, I just, just last week, I had an, an individual that I played baseball with at Arizona state who, who sent me this really nice message over Facebook. And he just said, Hey, I was a freshman when you were uh, a senior and I got injured early in the season. I was homesick and I didn't really like being at Arizona State, you know, I, I felt like a letdown. I didn't get along with my roommates. And he's like, you were the only one who really were still friendly and kind of went out of your way to make, make me feel included. And that's uh, that stayed with me for 20 plus years. I just really wanted to tell you that. And, you know, Denise, that, that's a true story. And that literally just happened last week. And so that's the kind of going back to the the core values or principles that, I try to do, try to go with that I hopefully can install in my children, as well as the team that I lead at Learn It and, you know, the, the type of people I want to surround myself with. You know, you remind me very much of a very dear friend of mine, and he's a sports famous sports figure, and that is Jim Tunney. He's known as the Dean of NFL Referees. And, you know, he was a, a principal. He was a speaker. I mean, he has done a lot of things in his life. In fact, this true story, Frank Sinatra would not watch football if Jim Tunney wasn't on the field. He just wouldn't. He couldn't be bothered. I love that. <laughs> That's great. Oh, he has told me some of the most. How did you get, how did you, how did you meet him? Oh, I've known him for years. He's actually became a client of mine. I've built his websites and I do all of his social media, but we're very good friends. I'm helping him write his autobiography right now. He, in fact, I'm not helping him. I nagged him into it, <laughs> to be honest, because over the years, and we talk almost every day, he has told me the most amazing stories about figures who are, you know, people who are now gone. But they're just, you're like, oh, my God, did you write that? And I'm I'm scribbling them down. So I've got a big box with a manuscript on it, in it, that I'm working on. But he he's just one of the best people. But going back to what you were talking about, he gets messages regularly 
from people who knew him while they were in one of his schools or, you know, knew him on the speaker circuit and they love him and they learn so much from, you never hear a negative word about him, but he was always exactly what you are, you know, inclusive. He was there to help. He was there to coach if he needed. And, you know, if he needed a smack on the head, you might get that too. Yeah. I mean, sounds like a great gentleman and I, and I, and I get a charge out of it. And, and so does he, it sounds like, and, and I'm sure you do as well of just making, being able to make a difference in somebody's life. And that's kind of what I think has motivated me to stay in the uh, learning and development world so long is that we can really help motivate or, or help people with their self-confidence and make a, make a difference in their lives. Right. And you don't know you're doing it half the time. Until somebody 30 years down the road says, hey, by the way, oh, hi. We just don't know what we're leaving in our wake is my point. You're right. You're right. And also realize that, you know, what I like to tell a lot of our clients who are managers and leaders or, or even parents is you're always on. You know, people are always studying you. They're always seeing how you're behaving, how you're acting, you know, what your body language is. And you just need to to be mindful of that and, and lead by example. I say that all the time and nobody can see me. There are no pictures of me on the internet. There never will be. I'm a complete introvert. And I read 1984 when I was a kid, scared the bejeebers out of me. So there are no pictures of me anywhere. But I rely on my voice to let people know who I am, what I'm talking about, where I'm at. And I said this to somebody yesterday, even though you can't hear me, you can probably picture my micro expressions if you're paying attention, if you're listening. And I think that's where a lot of people kind of fail. They're not really listening or observing. They're not curious. Going there, back to what we're talking about. Yeah, they're, that's not, exactly. they're not curious. So and I, I'm a big believer, Denise, that everybody you come into contact with, you can learn something from. That, that they're more of an expert in some topic than you are. And uh, if you go through life not interested in what other people have to say, then, you know, you, it's really hard to grow and evolve. But if you get thrown into a if you get thrown into a cocktail party or you're in some situation that maybe you don't want to be in. Make the best out of it. Go talk to people. Get a little out of your comfort zone and learn something. Get curious. Exactly. Oh, I love that you said get curious. One of my very dear friends is always saying that get curious, get curious. And it's in the top of my head all the time because I'm curious about everything. I'm curious to know why my cat just licked his brother's butt. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. sorry. (laughs) I did warn you. He's a hashtag <laughs> so and you know he likes to think this is a podcast p-a-w-d cast and he wants to be here when i'm talking with people but what i wanted to ask you honestly and, and i've been you know kind of keeping this back a little bit yeah. what is the trust tax okay so the trust tax i i talk about in my book is you know you go into all these relationships whether it's personal whether it's professional whatever it is. And, and you have a couple, couple options. You can go in as being cynical, uh, skeptical that, you know, you're going to, you're going to get taken advantage of because we've all been taken advantage of at some point. You know, we've been let down by somebody, whether it's a, a family friend or, you know, whether it's family, a friend or a coworker, I choose to go through life when you engage in a relationship, a new relationship is to believing in the best in somebody. I mean, obviously you got to be, you know, got to be smart who you're, who you're dealing with, but one of giving people the benefit of the doubt. And, and if you hire them to work for you and they're working for you, then you want to give them the space and the trust that they're going to do their job and they're going to put in a full effort. Now the trust tax is the times that you get let down, you know, and it's just, and it's something that's going to happen and it's just a tax you have to pay. But I think that it's, worth paying because the coming in with the approach of being open and believing in people is going to far exceed the 
ability to come in, or not ability, but far exceed coming in with a very skeptical, closed-minded approach and thinking right. people always out to get, you know, if you come in thinking, well, this person's out to get me, this person's out to get me, you're, you're never going to grow and evolve, you know, and, and so that's what I think it's important to pay the trust tax because it's going to happen every once in a while. You can learn from that and try to avoid those situations, but by far, especially if you're surrounding yourself with good people, uh, you're going to be let down far less often and you're going to build great relationships. I agree with you. And if your natural inclination is to not trust other people, you need to work on that. <laughs> you really do. But when when I read, when I wrote this down and made a note to myself about trust acts, often the person or people who will let you down can be yourself and boy you need to learn from that what did i do why did i do it i'm not doing that again that's that's a very interesting point and, and i didn't really think about that but it but that's true you know i think that sometimes you, you can uh, you absolutely can let yourself down but i also think that you, you can't beat yourself up too much over it right you know if you're no. if you you're have to learn from it you have to learn from it, right? And if your inner voice is always telling yourself, oh, I'm a moron, or I'm, you know, why did I do this? You know, I'm no good. You know, that's, that's awful, right? I mean, I think that instead, you shouldn't be too hard on yourself again. Realize, you know, sometimes you make some make a mistake, or let's say you buy something, and then you realize, oh, man, why did I spend the money on that? You know, and it's something you can't take back. Just realize what you would have done differently next time. And just, you know, be a little easier on yourself. Exactly. Buyer's remorse. It's one of the biggest things we all deal with. I wanted to ask you, Damon, when you were writing this book, and there are several chapters, and I've got cards all over it, what was the most fun for you to write? I mean, I love the story about you wanting to be known as Batman when you were very young. So, good question. I would say my favorite, so my favorite chapter, where I had the most fun writing and reliving was the uh chapter five which was a story about uh throwing a um after party for guns and roses back in uh 2000 I have a big card in there that was going to be my next questions take no, risks, make decisions yeah 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 so that that was kind of that, that was kind of a lot of fun writing that the batman story you're referring to is you know i use that as an example of being committed and going all in and when i was uh when I was, I don't know, what nursery school, which is what, four years old, I was Batman, you know, and if my teacher called me, and I kind of remember this uh, just a little bit, but if my teacher tried to call me Damon or, or try to get me to do something, paint or take a nap in class, whatever, in nursery school, I would only respond to Batman. And there's a letter that's framed in my um, mom's house that talks about how, hey, we think it's great your kids got to big personality and is so creative but you know this batman uh has gone too far you know he needs to come back into reality but um yeah that's that's my batman story i laughed so hard when i read that because years ago i was visiting san francisco and my little nephew he was probably five or six years old and he would not sit down in the car and he was driving me crazy and he kept running around in the car it was a van actually and because we were traveling around California, so we had rented a van and nobody could make him stop. And he kept saying, I'm Batman, I'm Batman. And I finally had enough. I said, OK, baby cakes. He lost his cookies to this day. And he's in his 20s now. I still call him baby cakes just to torment him. That's awesome. I was almost I was almost worried that I was going to be late today because I have a two year old son who is uh, convinced that he's Marshall from Paw Patrol. And he would not put on any other shirt unless he got to wear his Marshall Paw Patrol shirt. And he's a strong little two-year-old. And, and I, of course, gave in. And my wife asked me, Who, who's, who's in charge here? You or, or, you or Wally? And I said, I got to get in. So today, Wally, is, you know, he, he's, he needs his Marshall shirt. Marshall. Well, he got what he needed. So there yeah. you I wanted to ask you, let's go back to take risks and make decisions because you mentioned um, Guns N' Roses, but tell me about the Axl Rose story and your sister, I think it was. Oh, so the Guns N' Roses story that I talked about, and, and I use that as an example on, on making decisions, 
is I'm a I'm a big huge music fan and especially 80s rock and as I mentioned you know we had a big hotel uh we had a hotel chain and a real estate company and I would I would barter hotel rooms with some of these bands and in return for for passes and so I got to know a bunch of managers and then one day I got a call from a friend named Dean Delray who's actually a really I, you know, I mean, talk about a learn it all and somebody who I'm super proud of. He, he's he got his own podcast, Let There, Let there Be Rock. And he's really made something of himself. I'm really uh, impressed with what he's done. But he called me and he said, hey, Guns N' Roses is coming to town in September and they want to do an after party. Do you think you could put that together? And so, I, of course, I said, of course, we could put it together. And so we did. You know, I'll leave out some of the details that, were, that I have in the book. So we put it together. And it was difficult because we had to stay up all night. You know, we had to find a bar that would serve alcohol past curfew and, and everything and, you know, past two o'clock. But we did. The night of the show, we went to dinner, my brother and I, and the band manager for Guns N' Roses, for Axel, actually, and the guy who owned the club. And he pulled me aside, Denise, and he said, we may have a little issue. And I said, well, what do you mean we may have a little issue? And he said, well, I, I've been getting these notices from the city that there may be a outage, a water outage in between, you know, 11 and, and 3 a.m. in our, you know, in our neighborhood. And I said, well, no big deal. We'll just, let's just make sure we load up on bottled water. And my brother tapped me on the shoulder. He's like, come on, idiot. If there's no water, there's no toilets. There's no water and there's no toilets. You know, that's going to be a huge mess, you know? And we are, we just called five minutes earlier and we heard that there's people lined up around the block to get in. And this is like a Wednesday night at like uh, 10 o'clock, you know, to this party. And so, and we didn't want to tell the, the manager of Guns N' Roses, this was just me and the bar owner and talking. And he said, it's too late to really do anything. Do you want to cancel the party? Or do you want to move forward and, and just, you know, roll the dice? And I use this as an example. I talk about this term called purposeful awfulizing. And it comes to decision-making and, and risk-taking. And what I mean by that is if you have a decision that you're looking at and you fast forward one year out and you can live with the worst case uh, consequences, right? What, like, what's the worst thing that could happen if I went forward with this party and there's no water, I mean, I'd look like a, a, I'd embarrass myself, but it wouldn't be a big deal. But in a business sense, if I was, uh, you know, a CEO of a company and I was looking to acquire another business and if the worst case consequence would bankrupt us or put us out of business or something we couldn't, you know, we couldn't burden, then maybe you don't make that decision, right? You go back to the drawing board. But in this particular case, the worst case decision was that that the uh, there's no water and you know we embarrass ourselves. So I just said, hey, you know what? Let's just go for it. Let's just see what happens. Screw it. Let's do it. Let's just do it. Like Richard, like Sir Richard Branson would say in, in his books. And so we we did. So here we are. This is September of 2006, and it was like a throwback to the 80s. You know, there was guys from Metallica there. There was guys from. Um, Ugly Kid Joe, the band, Skid Row, all these guys. And people kept coming up to me left and right. And they said, you know, where's Axel? Where's Axel? And it was around 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And I said, well, I, I don't know if Axel's going to show up. Who knows? And um, But I said, look around. Look, there's Lars from Metallica. There's, you know, Sebastian Bach from Skid Row. And it was uh, just enjoy yourself. And then all of a sudden, um, the mood kind of changed. And somebody said, Axel's here. And this was, you know, when Axel disappeared from public for 10 years, just about. And, you know, he, so Axel came in and um, went to the VIP area and uh, got a lot of attention, Denise, from a lot of the um, female guests at the party, so to say. And his girlfriend wasn't too happy with that. He seemed to be having a good time, but uh, she she stormed out after about 20, 25 minutes and Axel left along with her, um, chased her, you know, chased her out the door uh, to catch up with her. And so the whole point of the story was the water still happened. Uh, we, we didn't have any out, outage of water. 
and we made it through that decision. And I have a story that I can tell for the rest of my life that even though he only showed up for 20 minutes, I threw a party. My brother and I threw a party that Axel Rose came to. And he asked you why you did that to yourself. Oh, well, that's that's a different part. So when I was in high school, I can't believe I'm saying this. When I, when I was in high school, I got a Guns N' Roses tattoo. And so uh, I, prior to having this party, and of course, Axel didn't know it, but we, I, got, I, got, I was lucky enough to go backstage to uh, a show at Madison Square Garden. And I probably had a couple of drinks and had got enough confidence to introduce myself to him. And I told him I was a big fan. And my sister, Sammy, the same one I talked about a lot in, in the book uh, about painting her red when she was a little kid, right? So she got me back. She pulled up my sleeve and she said, hey, Axel, look what this guy did. He's got a Guns N' Roses tattoo. And Axel turned to me and said, why would you do that to yourself? And kind of laughed and patted me on the shoulder. So you're right. <laughs> uh, again, I've had stickies all over this book because there's something I'm I just yeah, laughing yeah. out loud, going, "Okay, this yeah, is." Yeah, I got a Guns N' Roses tattoo. Yeah. Right. Well, and the fact that he asked you why you would do that to yourself—it's like that's a valid question. Yeah. But yeah. this is what I love about the book. It's easy to read. You know, you've scattered personal stories that are sometimes just laugh out loud funny, and other times you painted your sister red. Really. Well, I called my nephew, you know, baby cake. So I guess, you know, I get it. I understand. But it is very much a leadership book. There's no question about it. Yeah, I, I try to, I, I look, I'm like you. I, I try to read about 40 or 50 books a year. And um, when it comes to uh, nonfiction books, I, I enjoy fiction as well. So the, the books that I get the most out of are the books that I feel like practical actionable and, and and can tie stories into learning lessons. So when I set out to write my book, I, I wanted to do something like that. You know, I didn't want to make it, you know, a 500 page book that you had to uh, have a dictionary uh, next to you to, to look up words that you didn't understand. So I just wanted to come across as a easy read, but more practical. And most importantly, that people can take in whether you're you know managing a team or you're somebody transitioning from sports to the business world, that actionable items that you can turn around and easily implement. Can and I should know this, but I don't, and I'm embarrassed to admit that I don't. But is this book available on Audible, or will it be available? You know that's a that's a great question, and the reason why that's a great question is it kind of kind of goes back to what we talked about imposter syndrome. You know Denise. I um, I got out of my comfort zone and I went and recorded my entire book uh, for Audible about a month ago. And I'm um, considering whether or not I'm going to release it or not, you know, if it's good enough. I, I, I think I'm going to do it. You know, I did it for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted my kids to have something that they can always listen to their dad speaking. Who knows what, what's going to happen 20, 30 years from now. Um I'm leaning towards it, uh, right? So the, the the long answer to an easy question is, it's not available on Audible at this moment, but I would say yes by the end of the year. Well, let me know. Do me a favor and let me know. I I read a lot. I'm a voracious reader. I will, I'll read the back of a cereal box, and I hate cereal, but I'll read anything that you know steps in front of me. But I also have an enormous number of audiobooks I don't again I don't watch video or tv it's just it doesn't it bores me I need to hear or read that's how I learn but yeah and I've had people say well Denise you know can you do audiobooks for us no my, my god no and I'll tell you you talk about impossible yeah, by the way but yeah yeah I can't stand the sound of my own voice I honestly think Funny how that happens oh geez I'll accidentally hear myself and say oh I'm waiting to hear myself sing happy birthday, Mr. President. I think I sound ridiculous. <laughs> so, no, the answer is no, I'm not going to be doing any audio books. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll keep you informed. And if you want the unedited version, just tell me and I'll, I'll send it to you anyways. Oh, yes. Send it, please. I would love to hear it. I will. As long as you give me your honest critique and what you think. Oh, I will. I don't have any filters. I've warned you about that. So it, no, if I hear something that I'll think, Hmm, that 
what was that? I'll, I'll let you know, but I would love to, to hear it. Damon, I really, and we're just about out of time. I told you it's the fastest 60 minutes on the internet. I really appreciate your company today, and I'm so glad you sent me the book. And spending time with you has been a genuine pleasure. So before I let you go, do you have any last-minute thoughts, and where can people find you? So my last-minute thoughts are for those of you out there who are looking to either make a career change or you're in a position that maybe you're not sure you're qualified for, you are. Give yourself the credit, work hard, and good luck. And where can you find me? Probably the best way to find me is on my LinkedIn page at Damon Lemby. Um, my book is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all of those. And uh, you could also go to our my company website, which is learnit.com. I love that name, learnit.com. That was whoever got that domain for you, I'm guessing a long time ago, was brilliant. Yeah, that was that was. Walt Lemby, my dad's, um, he came up with that. It's 100% yeah. for that. Yeah, it's brilliant. Well, listen, everybody, as we conclude today's episode, your feedback does mean a lot to me. And if you found the show helpful, please support us with a quick review on iTunes. Your input really is vital to my mission to inspire and empower more individuals. So don't forget to hit the subscribe button, leave a review, and share your partner in Success Radio with friends and family and colleagues. And be sure to find Damon Lemby on the web. Grab his book. I highly recommend it. Thank you for tuning in. And Damon, again, thank you so much. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.